Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Funeral of a Great Myth by C.S. Lewis Part 2 I grew up believing in this myth, and I have felt, I still feel, its almost perfect grandeur. Let no one say we are an unimaginative age. Neither the Greeks nor the Norsemen ever invented a better story. Even to the present day, in certain moods, I could almost find it in my heart to wish that it was not mythical, but true. And yet, how could it be? What makes it impossible that it should be true is not so much the lack of evidence for this or that scene in the drama, or the fatal self-contradiction which runs right through it, the myth cannot even get going without accepting a good deal from the real sciences, and the real sciences cannot be accepted for a moment unless rational inferences are valid. For every science claims to be a series of inferences from observed facts. It is only by such inferences that you can reach your nebulae and protoplasm and dinosaurs and submen and cavemen at all. Unless you start by believing that reality in the remotest space and the remotest time rigidly obeys the laws of logic, you can have no ground for believing in any astronomy, any biology, any paleontology, any archaeology. To reach the positions held by the real scientists, which are then taken over by the myth, you must, in fact, treat reason as an absolute. But at the same time, the myth asks me to believe that reason is simply the unforeseen and unintended byproduct of a mindless process at one stage of its endless and aimless becoming. The content of the myth thus knocks from under me the only ground on which I could possibly believe the myth to be true. If my own mind is a product of the irrational, if what seem my clearest reasonings are only the way in which a creature conditioned as I am is bound to feel, how shall I trust my mind when it tells me about evolution? They say, in effect, quote, I will prove that what you call a proof is only the result of mental habits which result from heredity, which results from biochemistry, which results from physics. But this is the same as saying, I will prove that proofs are irrational. More succinctly, I will prove that there are no proofs, the fact that some people of scientific education cannot by any effort be taught to see the difficulty confirms one's suspicion that we here touch a radical disease in their whole style of thought. But the man who does see it is compelled to reject as mythical the cosmology in which most of us were brought up. That it has embedded in it many true particulars, I do not doubt. But in its entirety, it simply will not do. Whatever the real universe may turn out to be like, it can't be like that. I have been speaking hitherto of this myth as of a thing to be buried, because I believe that its dominance is already over. In the sense that what seems to me to be the most vigorous movements of contemporary thought point away from it. Physics, a discipline less easily mythological, is replacing biology as the science par excellence in the mind of the plain man. The whole philosophy of becoming has been vigorously challenged by the American humanists. The revival of theology has attained proportions that have to be reckoned with. 
the romantic poetry and music in which popular evolutionism found their natural counterpart, are going out of fashion. But of course, a myth does not die in a day. We may expect that this myth, when driven from cultured circles, will long retain its hold on the masses, and even when abandoned by them will continue for centuries to haunt our language. Those who wish to attack it must beware of despising it. There are deep reasons for its popularity. The basic idea of the myth, that small or chaotic or feeble things perpetually turn themselves into large, strong, ordered things, may, at first sight, seem a very odd one. We have never actually seen a pile of rubble turning itself into a house. But this odd idea commends itself to the imagination by the help of what seem to be two instances of it within everyone's knowledge. Everyone has seen individual organisms doing it. Acorns become oaks. Grubs become insects. Eggs become birds. Every man was once an embryo. And secondly, which weighs very much in the popular mind during a machine age, Everyone has seen evolution really happening in the history of machines. We all remember when locomotives were smaller and less efficient than they are now. These two apparent instances are quite enough to convince the imagination that evolution in a cosmic sense is the most natural thing in the world. It is true that reason cannot here agree with imagination. These apparent instances are not really instances of evolution at all. The oak comes indeed from the acorn, but then the acorn was dropped by an earlier oak. Every man began with the union of an ovum and a spermatozoan, but the ovum and the spermatozoan came from two fully developed human beings. The modern express engine came from the rocket, but the rocket came not from something under and more elementary than itself, but from something much more developed and highly organized, the mind of a man and a man of genius. Modern art may have developed from savage art, but then the very first picture of all did not evolve itself. It came from something overwhelmingly greater than itself, from the mind of that man who by seeing for the first time that marks on a flat surface could be made to look like animals and men, proved himself to excel in sheer blinding genius any of the artists who have succeeded him. It may be true that if we trace back any existing civilization to its beginnings, we shall find those beginnings crude and savage. But then, when you look closer, you usually find that these beginnings themselves come from a wreck of some earlier civilization. In other words, the apparent instances of, or analogies to, evolution, which impress the folk imagination, operate by fixing our attention on one half of the process. What we actually see all around us is a double process, the perfect dropping and imperfect seed, which in its turn develops to perfection. By concentrating exclusively on the record or upward movement in this cycle, we seem to see evolution. I am not in the least denying that organisms on this planet may have evolved, but if we are to be guided by the analogy of nature as we now know her, it would be reasonable to suppose that this evolutionary process was the second half of a long pattern, that the crude beginnings of life on this planet have themselves been dropped there by a full and perfect life. The analogy may be mistaken. Perhaps nature was once different, 
Perhaps the universe as a whole is quite different from those parts of it which fall under our observation. But if that is so, if there was once a dead universe which somehow made itself alive, if there was absolutely original savagery which raised itself by its own shoulder strap into civilization, then we ought to recognize that things of this sort happen no longer, that the world we are being asked to believe in is radically unlike the world we experience. In other words, all the immediate plausibility of the myth has vanished. But it has vanished only because we have been thinking it will remain plausible to the imagination. And it is imagination which makes the myth. It takes over from rational thought only what it finds convenient. Another source of strength in the myth is what the psychologist would call its ambivalence. It gratifies equally two opposite tendencies of the mind. The tendency to denigration and the tendency to flattery. In the myth, everything is becoming everything else. In fact, everything is everything else at an earlier or later stage of development, the later stages being always the better. This means that if you are feeling like Mencken, you can debunk all the respectable things by pointing out that they are merely elaborations of the disreputable things. Love is merely an elaboration of lust. Virtue, merely an elaboration of instinct, and so forth. On the one hand, it also means that if you are feeling what the people call idealistic, you can regard all the nasty things in yourself or your party or your nation as being merely the undeveloped forms of all the nice things. Vice is only undeveloped virtue. Egoism, only undeveloped altruism. A little more education will set everything right. The myth also soothes the old wounds of our childhood. Without going as far as Freud, we may yet well admit that every man has an old grudge against his father and his first teacher. The process of being brought up, however well it is done, cannot fail to offend. How pleasing, therefore, to abandon the old idea of descent from our concoctors in favor of the new idea of evolution, or emergence, to feel that we have risen from them as a flower from the earth, that we transcend them as Keats's gods transcended the Titans. One then gets a kind of cosmic excuse for regarding one's father as a muddling old Mima, and his claims upon our gratitude or respect as an insufferable Stamenlied. Out of the way, old fool! It is we who know to forge no thumb. The myth also pleases those who want to sell things to us. In the old days, a man had a family carriage built for him when he got married and expected it to last all his life. Such a frame of mind would hardly suit modern manufacturers. But popular evolutionism suits them exactly. Nothing ought to last. They want you to have a new car, a new radio set, a new everything every year. The new model must always be superseding the old. Madame would like the latest fashion. For this is evolution. This is development. This the way the universe itself is going. And sales resistance is the sin against the Holy Ghost, the elan vital. Finally, modern politics would be impossible without the myth. It arose in the revolutionary period, but for the political ideas of that period, it would never have been accepted. 
That explains why the myth concentrates on Haldane's one case of biological progress and ignores his ten cases of degeneration. If the cases of degeneration were kept in mind, it would be impossible not to see that any given change in society is at least as likely to destroy the liberties and amenities we already have as to add new ones, that the danger of slipping back is at least as great as the chance of getting on, that a prudent society must spend at least as much energy on conserving what it has as on improvement. A clear knowledge of these truisms would be fatal both to the political left and to the political right of modern times. The myth obscures that knowledge. Great parties have a vested interest in maintaining the myth. We must therefore expect that it will survive in the popular press, including the ostensibly comic press, long after it has been expelled from educated circles. In Russia, where it has been built into the state religion, it may survive for centuries, for it has great allies. Its friends are propaganda, party cries, and bilge, and man's incorrigible mind. But that is not the note on which I wish to end. The myth has all these discreditable allies, but we should be far astray if we thought it had no others. As I have tried to show, it has better allies too. It appeals to the same innocence and permanent needs in us which welcome Jack the Giant Killer. It gives us almost everything the imagination craves. Irony, heroism, vastness, unity in multiplicity, and a tragic close. It appeals to every part of me except my reason. That is why those of us who feel that the myth is already dead for us must not make the mistake of trying to debunk it in the wrong way. We must not fancy that we are securing the modern world from something grim and dry, something that starves the soul. The contrary is the truth. It is our painful duty to wake the world from an enchantment. The real universe is probably in many respects less poetical, certainly less tidy and unified than they had supposed. Man's role in it less heroic. The danger that really hangs over him is perhaps entirely lacking in true tragic dignity. It is only in the last resort, and after all lesser poetries have been renounced and imagination sternly subjected to intellect, that we shall be able to offer them any compensation for what we intend to take away from them. That is why, in the meantime, we must treat the myth with respect. It was all, on a certain level, nonsense. But a man would be a dull dog if he could not feel the thrill and charm of it. For my own part, though I believe it no longer, I shall always enjoy it as I enjoy other myths. I shall keep my caveman where I keep Balder and Helen and the Argonauts, and there often revisit him. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, 
will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>